I V M. Mr. Vedi, wonderful, wonderful book. I've enjoyed reading your book so much. Thank you so much for being on the note with me. And I want to start out by saying that it's so hard, at least in my view, I've often wondered, it must be so hard to pen down some of the most emotional private moments of your life. How tough is it to be so honest about oneself? It is tough. It is tough because you have to revisit areas of your life, some of which you don't want to revisit, um, relive them, re-experience them, put them down. Uh, it's a very emotional process to, to do that. Uh, but I had a choice. If I was going to tell my story, either I was going to tell it sugar-coated and make it all sound like a wonderful fairy tale, or tell it like it was, warts and all, um, triumphs, tragedies, uh, everything uh, that I went through. And I wanted to give people a sense of actually experiencing it with me. So it's like I'm in the driver's seat, you're sitting in the back, and I'm driving you through this uh, emotional roller coaster that I go through across three continents. That was the, but it was hard uh, revisiting a lot of those uh, chapters. Um, I'm glad I was able to do it because it was cathartic for me as well as, uh, in a sense, revelatory because I was able to look back on that time and occasion with wiser eyes. Interesting uh, that you say that, you know, because the one thing that strikes a reader of your book, at least what uh, struck me the most was uh, your absolute brutal honesty. And that's what one comes across with. That's one of the predominant emotions. The other is you being so unconventional. You know, the 60s and the 70s, you kind of embodied the leap of freedom that these uh, decades had. Do you still continue to be as unconventional? <laughs> I've always been a rebel of sorts. And, you know, it was very exciting to live through uh, all the 60s and 70s, which I regard as some of the most exciting decades of the last century. So it was everything that, that was embodied by a whole new movement that embraced uh, the anti-war protests, that embraced the counterculture movement, that embraced the hippie culture. Uh, the pill had been invented. There was sexual freedom in the air. There was so much to do with the spirit of an age of rebellion in that time. And we wanted to be part of that. And we believed we were heralding a new era of permissiveness in, in India as well, um, breaking the rules and and making headlines that scandalize people. We sort of enjoyed our rebellion in a youthful kind of way. And I think that uh, those decades shaped my life and shaped the lives of many uh, in, the, in, the, in the years to come, because it was a generation of enormous consciousness change across the world. Do you think that somehow over the years, even though we have so many more avenues to express ourselves, we're somehow becoming far more confined, far more restrictive, far more private than perhaps we were back then? I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, we, we tend to glamorize uh, the past a lot. We look at the high moments and say, look how wonderful it was. It's like people looking back on films saying they made such wonderful films those days. Well, they did, but those wonderful films we made today. So yeah. the fact is, yes, there was a degree of uh, 
uh, openness that we were promoting, uh, mm-hmm. the country, in a sense, was far more conservative. I mean, the fact that Pratima and I lived together was the subject of headlines in magazines. They lived together without being married. Today, people wouldn't care. Don't sure. forget, Maroc, this is today the age of Tinder, which would have been mm-hmm. unthinkable in our time. Uh, sure. There's a whole new fluidity in relationships, uh, especially among the younger generation. That was equally unthinkable in our time. So I don't think we moved backwards. I think we have, in fact, moved forwards, although on the surface, in terms of certain political extremists taking the law into their own hands, it seems mm-hmm. we are, we're being more aggressive. But overall, as a country, I think we're far more progressive. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I see the cover of uh, of your book right behind you. And I want to tell my viewers and listeners that uh, what a good looking man. I mean, I can imagine heads turning and you did that, whether it was Italy and uh, Hollywood and of course, Bollywood. But I want to move Thank to God. the book and uh, and talk about you know, one of the things that I personally didn't know, uh, even though I've been uh, an admirer and fan, is the fact that you were also a journalist and, in fact, interviewed the Beatles. Uh, can you tell us how that happened? Well, I was I was a student at St. Stephen's College in Delhi. And to pay for that, I had to work my way through college because of my parents' idealistic beliefs, which resulted in very little money in the till. And I heard the Beatles had come into town. And I was their biggest fan, so I wanted to get there. And I persuaded my bosses at All India Radio to give me a tape recorder and give me the badge. And I got into the lobby of the Oberoi Intercontinental where they were staying. And I, everyone was looking for the Beatles. I was looking for their manager because I knew the key to them was getting through to their manager. And I knew who their manager was. I knew who he looked like. I was their biggest mm. fan. So I saw him descend into the lobby and uh, walk towards the hotel entrance exit. And I followed him there. And I said, sir, the... Um, government have scheduled an interview with the Beatles. And he said, what nonsense? No question. The boys will not give anybody an interview. <laughs> I said, sir, this is a government matter. The government will get very uh, annoyed if this is not. They've already announced it for, for 10 o'clock at night. And I knew that mm-hmm. this was their vulnerability, talking about the government, because they'd already had a run-in with the government of the Philippines before coming here and had to leave the Philippines, right. uh, be, being manhandled at the airport on the way out. So uh-huh. I realized that this was a way of getting through the impenetrable defenses of the manager. And it worked. He said, well, I will give a bloody interview. And that was good enough. And when I went to meet him to get the interview, he was obviously not well. So he walked me across the length of the hotel floor into the suite of the Beatles and said, boys, do me a favor, give this chap an interview. And there I was with the Beatles. And the Beatles were not just great musicians. They were not just people I admired for their music. They represented that age that I was speaking of. They were the symbols of a whole new age. This is the time of the Pink Floyd and the Doors and Simon and Garfunkel and all these wonderful new sounds that were permeating the ethers of the music world. And the Beatles were the king of them all. So what I actually said to them in that, interview. It's in the book. Mm. Uh, yes. Better be you read it there because it's far more interesting and far more in detail out there. But they were magical figures. And um, mm. that interview actually changed my life because strangely enough, it led to my leaving Delhi. Mm. Interesting. I mean, this is fascinating because as a journalist, you know, when you get such a big interview, it's such a high. It is. Uh, but, you know, let's talk about Bollywood. 
Honestly, to me, as somebody who's seen your work, I think the world recognized you in a far bigger and better way than Bollywood did. What were your learnings? Uh, did you make mistakes along the way in Bollywood or did it give you the platform to kind of, you know, then jump into the international arena? A bit of both. I got into Bollywood films because of my success in a play called Tugla, Kirish Kanaj's first play, directed by Alec Adamsi. Mm-hmm. And that led to offers. And I got offered lead roles in films. But I realized very quickly that I did not enjoy singing and dancing. Uh, I had two hmm. left feet. I, 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 Which not, is I a thought, prerequisite for Hindi oh, feature films. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and, and I thought of myself as being a serious actor. I thought good acting and a good presence on the screen would be enough to guarantee me career as a leading man. I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong. Because music is firstly an integral part of Bollywood films. Hmm. Nobody in the world does it better. It is as organic to Bollywood films as opera is to the Italians. And therefore, for an actor to say he won't sing and dance is to say that don't cast him as a leading man. Mm. So I knew that I had to look beyond Bollywood if I wanted to have a career as an actor without singing and dancing. What Bollywood did give me in those early films, especially with that big hit with Kachi Dhage, directed by Raj Khosla, was it made me a name. Hmm. So I was an actor with a name. And when the Italians came looking for the character to play Sandokan in right. Mumbai, which was one of six cities they were going to in the whole of Asia to find the best Sandokan in the whole of Asia, when they asked around for a tall, bearded, athletic actor, my name came up because I was made known by Bollywood. I became a name through Bollywood. So that then led to my getting the audition, going to Rome for the audition. Um, nailing the audition, and it led to the kind of success that I had in Europe, which was a, a, enormous. It was enormous. I mean, phenomenal success. You've also been, you know, what would be the Italian equivalent of being knighted, right? Yes, and yes. Eventually. must have been a heady experience. I mean, how did you manage that fame? That too at an international level. I mean, we're talking about Europe. We're talking about the whole world pretty much recognizing your talent. You know, um, it was it was euphoric because there I was in Italy getting the kind of adulation that I associated with the Beatles who had interviewed. And there I was receiving it at the receiving end. And it was extraordinary. I'd gone there with, with Parveen Babi, who I was together with at the time. And the experiences we had and the people we met, uh, filmmakers from Pellini to um, Bertolucci to uh, Audrey Hepburn, to just extraordinary people one met in that process. Mm. And the scenes of adulation, not just in Italy, but I, I've recounted an incident that happened in Spain where I literally had to flee a, a department store and run across the tops of cars to get away from fans. That kind of... <laughs> and it was, was heady. This is the kind of success that actors dream of but rarely get. So what that experience is and how a boy from Delhi ends up becoming a major star in Europe, that's certainly one half of my book. Uh, no, but you know what I also love about the book is the fact that you talk about, yes, the glamour and the fame, but also the loneliness and the insecurity. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Would you like to elaborate on that for all our viewers? On what does it feel like? What is this dichotomy that an actor right at the top feels? You know, it's a very perceptive question, Mark, because everyone associates films as a glamour and money and success and everything else. And yes, there is that too, one doesn't deny it. 
But at the same time, it is the most insecure industry in the world because those who have the highest levels of success are afraid of losing it. Those that don't have it want to get it. And there is this constant state of dissatisfaction of either not having what you want or afraid of losing what you have. And this creates a permanent place of insecurity. Also, this is the one industry where if you're an actor, it doesn't very often depend on you as to what your next job is. It depends on somebody else saying, I want you for this job. Right. You know, so unlike somebody who's in business who depends how hard mm. they work, they get ahead, you know, somebody who writes a book, how hard they promote. Here, you are entirely dependent on somebody else saying, I want you. And there's many factors that decide that which are outside your control. One of them is the ability to network, which I wasn't very good at. The other is um, being right for the role and being wanted by the right groups of people. These were some of the problems I faced in Hollywood. So what it is like to experience all the success of it, as well as suffer the emotional insecurities that come with that journey, that is the stuff that my book is all about. And, and I must tell all our viewers and listeners that you must read this book to get an insight, not just into the man that Mr. Kabir Vedi is, but also the challenges that come with glamour and with, you know, how it appears to the outside world and uh, perhaps the challenges that are going on within. And that's what I found most fascinating. Uh, I want to talk about Hollywood and octopusy and being the born bad guy, as I would like to call it. That creates a completely different cult following, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, for an actor of any, to get a role of any importance in any Bond film, makes him a man of immediate curiosity for hundreds of millions of Bond fans around the world. It is the longest running film franchise in film history. Mm. So it has legions of followers and they have celebrations, they have seminars, they have conventions, they invite you to all kinds of places. So it's a wonderful world to, to tap into and you don't realize the power of that until you're at the receiving end of it. Because when you go to see a Bond film, you go to see, you know, the Bond, you see girls, glamour, guns, gadgets. That's what you want from a Bond film. Right. But what you experience as an actor is the adulation that these Bond fans have for the entire Bond franchise, whether it's Sean Connery playing Bond or whether it's Daniel Craig. Mm. That intensity of the fans has never diminished, which is why it continues to be such a thing. And for me, it was also a particular triumph because actually for the first time since I went to Hollywood, I was cast correctly as an Indian, as a mm. Sikh. Um, yeah, right. That's what I was. But didn't they make you a couple of shades darker? Did they? They might have used a little more brown than they should have, but the fact is, <laughs> you know, there are fair six, there are dark six, but um, the fact that I was cast as a six was important. They did want me to play it in a slightly more seedy kind of way, and I said, I can't do that. I'm playing a six, I have to play him with mm. immense pride, and uh, I'll be killed if I don't. So <laughs> I stuck to my guns and played him in a way whereby, even though I played the villain, he was somebody that, that, that the Sikh community could look up and say, Apra Banda, the cookie gar gaya. So that was important. It was um, a great experience working in the, in, the, in the Bond film. And they certainly treated me with enormous respect. And Louis Jordan uh, was a wonderful man. Maud Adams, who played Octopussy, was terrific. 
Roger was initially very reserved uh, and had this air of a very aristocratic uh, Englishman. But over time, uh, spending time on locations, we got to know each other. And he turned out to be a very warm person, far deeper than you imagine from his sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek persona on the screen. Oh, interesting. Uh, Mr. Bedi, um, you are one of, honestly, if one has to look at it, one of our first real crossover stars who had tremendous success. Do you think it's become much more easier now? Is crossover cinema now a reality, given how, you know, all platforms want to bring in larger audiences and they want to be acceptable to larger audiences? Do you see a difference now? And was it harder for you back then? It is. It's never easy. There's not easy business. It's very, very hard, a very slippery slope to climb because there's enormous numbers of setbacks at every step of the way. But it is easier now because, firstly, diversity has become an issue. Roles are being written for Indians as opposed to just for the Blacks or Hispanics. Roles are being written for Indians as well or people of Asian background. So that makes it easier. As I said, it's not easy, but it's easier. Mm -hmm. uh, the success of uh, Priyanka or Nimrat, etc., make me very, very happy. And the success also of Indian stories like In the White Tiger being made here and then being shown abroad and becoming hits abroad, that also gives me reason for great hope. Because you can yeah. see that stories with Indian protagonists um, can also resonate with audiences internationally. So things are changing, and it is very important that they change. We were constantly protesting the lack of roles being written, which is the biggest obstacle an actor can face. I dealt with it by just saying, okay, I'm not just the Indian, I'm the foreigner. So I played a Moroccan prince in The Bold and Beautiful for over a year. Okay. I played a Tuareg tribesman with Michael Caine. I played uh, Germans, I played Italians, I played all kinds of different nationalities. And for Hollywood, which is such an insular place, um, mm. anything beyond the shores of America is foreign. And any mm. foreigner can play any foreign role. And I cashed okay. in on that. <laughs> but today, when you see Indian cinema doing so well, and there are invariably, you know, comparisons made between Bollywood and Hollywood, uh, do you see us as being there, uh, close to the standards that Bollywood has? Or are we still stuck in that whole formulaic kind of films, despite what's happening in the OTT space? I mean, in the real Bollywood theatre multiplex space, uh, do you feel we have progressed? Are we closer to the standards that Hollywood has, rather? We've certainly progressed. There's no question. I think we've, uh, in many technical respects, we can match them. Uh, I think our actors are second to none. I think our directors are also brilliant. But Hollywood has always had this tremendous advantage of having a worldwide reach, that the films they make reach people across the world. We haven't broken that barrier of being able to make films here that are seen across the world by everybody. That's yeah. a kind of monopoly that Hollywood established almost by being the first in the game and having the muscle and by creating uh, stars that were not just American stars, but became worldwide stars. So to match that is very, very difficult. So since they have worldwide budget, since they have revenues like that, they can make films that are bigger. Question is, can we match them? We can match them with uh, human stories. And I think as the OTT space grows more than the Bollywood space, the Bollywood space is a very special space. It's a space that is made for a certain type of entertainment, which is wonderful to watch. 
I mean, I love watching song and dance routines, even though I don't like singing and dancing myself. I love watching them. Nobody in the world does them better. And, but that is not the kind of cinema that competes at, at a world level. At a world level, you need to have stories that are deeply human, that cut across all geographies. In the OTT space, I think Indian filmmakers are beginning to make those kind of films. For instance, sure. Serious Men by Sudhir Mishra, which I saw recently, is a world-class film. It's a film that touches everybody anywhere in the world in the same way that um, um, The Parasite, the, the Korean yes. film, touched everybody. Yes. So we can certainly do that. And if we have good commissioning editors that uh, the OTT platforms here have, they'll find the material and we find material that can match what Hollywood does. OTT has leveled the playing field a lot more because what you can't match in terms of worldwide theatrical distribution, you can match in terms of worldwide OTT distribution. And since the theatrical world is, is having a great setback with this pandemic, even more so the importance of the OTT in leveling the platform between Bollywood and Hollywood. Interesting. I want to talk about how you have portrayed your personal relationships in the book. And, and like I said, I started out, it's achingly honest. And, you know, to some of us, relatable also in terms of the basic uh, purity of emotions. But my question is, how hard is it to write about personal relationships, given that uh, the other person might not be around to give their side of the story? One. Two, how are you portraying them? Three, will you be judged? And most importantly, are you being hard on yourself because you want to give the other person the benefit of the doubt because you are writing about the other person? So are you harder on yourself in the process? Well, let's say I haven't spared myself. But by the same token, I have equally talked about the weaknesses of the problems of the other person as well. While talking about all the good things, but if I'm writing, then I have to write write about it all. It was certainly not easy, but at the end of it, having written it, I had two things in mind. Say in the case of Prasama, she's already written her book from her point of view. Okay. And it was her point of view. My point of view is slightly different. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have set that record straight as far as I'm concerned. So it was my answer to her, even though she's no longer with us. With Parveen again, I think she gave a lot of interviews when she came back after she left me in London, came back and restarted her career here. And she said a lot of things which basically weren't true, but I didn't say anything at the time because I knew she wanted to resurrect her career and she needed the sympathy. I did speak out many years later in one interview, but I have set the record straight of what happened between us in this book. I, mean, I think I made it more than clear that I wasn't the cause of her mental illness, which all the Indian press portrayed me to be, that in fact, I was the one that wanted to have her healed. And the circumstances that to our separation, I have I've gone through in the book with greater understanding, put it that way. Mm -hmm. I know what she did, why she did. I can understand it with the distance of age. And my reaction that time was far more emotional and, and, uh, and upset. I can see that my younger self, again, with greater understanding and say, you needn't have taken it so deeply because um, you moved on to other things. You know, when, when I set out to write this, Maru, I put above my computer a sticker saying, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Tell it like it was. What you felt, what they felt, what they said, what I said. And I've taken you through critical scenes 
uh, of an emotional relationship. It's almost like a history of a relationship or what it takes to be in a relationship with a person who is disturbed in some ways mm. and what it takes to deal with that and what you feel in that process. After Praveen left me, I summed that portion of that chapter up by saying, once we wanted to live forever, but the winds were stronger than our wings. And that was the truth of the matter. There were forces larger than us pulling us in different directions. And that was the tragedy of it as well. Wonderful. Uh, finally, Mr. Vedi, a memoir has a kind of finality to it, right? So what happens to the chapters that are to come? Where <laughs> did you decide that, you know, this is where the book ends? <laughs> you know, there are many things I, I had to leave out towards the end, especially many things that happened in America, etc. Because those chapters, see, the way I wrote this book was through a series of stories. Mm. And I had to stay true to each story. So in the story of Parveen, I covered many of the things that happened in America. In, in the story of my son, I covered other things that happened in America. The final chapter, I covered other things that happened in America. But there are still many stories that, that remain to be told. And if enough people like what I've written, uh, read what I've written, then I will write more stories, I must tell, because there are stories to tell. The form that I chose of different stories was important because it freed me from being linear. These stories are stories that overlap in time. So I can go back and forth in time, which is far more interesting than saying, I was born of this thing, then I went to school here, then I went to college here. That yeah. is kind of boring mm. for me. And I tore up God knows how many manuscripts uh, saying, I would not read this stuff, um, let alone anybody else. So... Having found that way of telling the story, I, I, I stuck to it. As a result, certain stories had to be left out or minimized. Mm. Otherwise, I would have had a 500-page book or a 600-page book, and nobody today has the bandwidth to, to read a 600-page book anymore. <laughs> right. At 300 pages, I think I've packed in more than enough uh, for <laughs> people to read, feel, experience, and know than most books do. Wonderful, Mr. Vedi. Just a, a last question, because I keep looking at the cover of the book right behind you. I mean, when, when you look at that version of Kabir Bedi, what does it remind you of? Are you still the same person? But the thing is, um, that was a picture taken in London after my big success in Italy by a photographer called uh, Terry O'Neill. And he was the Annie Leibovitz of his age. And getting mm -hmm. him to photograph him was quite a job. Yes. So I got him to take the picture. And he looked at the picture. He said, Kabir, there's something special about this picture. I've got to tell you, I've taken a lot of pictures. And he's a guy who photographed royalty, Elton John, the Beatles, etc. Mm -hmm. So for him to say that to me was like, wow. So I kept this picture with me um, through all my travels, wherever I uh, moved home. And eventually my wife, Parveen, said to me, this has got to be the cover of the book. And she was right, as she's been in many things. She's the one who enabled me to finish the book during the pandemic by protecting me so much, by giving me great insights into my book and helping me um, and, and driving me to finish the book. Otherwise, I might have taken three years uh, to finish it. But um, this picture got put on the cover of the book because Terry and Neil took the best picture of me <laughs> and Praveen chose it for the cover.
Oh, wonderful. Mr. Vedi, thank you so much. It's been such a delightful conversation. And thank you for this book. It, in a way, chronicles a certain part of Indian cinema history. And thank you so much for your lovely words. Thank you, Marak. Enjoyed talking to you. And I look forward Same to here. future conversations with you too. And I hope more people enjoy the book. Absolutely, Mr. Vedi. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Marak. Bye. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at the rate IVM podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out to me, I'm Mahrukh Hinayat on Twitter and Mahrukh Hinayat on Instagram as well.